Tim, who would win in a fight between you and me? What? If we had a fight, who would win, you or me? Shay, I'm three times your size. Yeah, but I'm quick. Not that quick. I'm pretty quick, pretty fast, pretty nifty. Have you ever punched anything, ever? Not as such. Not as such? No. I think... In this circumstance, I'd have to bet on myself. Shut up. This episode of Tales from the Pigshed is brought to you by Silver Forks Quality Cutlery. Silver Forks, for all your porks. Hello. Hi. Welcome to the Pigshed. Prime cuts of fiction aged for 21 days or more. We are here to bring you two stories inspired by one of Norwich's historical blue plaques, one from Tim. And the other from Shay. I am not Shay. I am Shay, right? Right. Today's plaque might be my favourite plaque of them all. You can't have favourites. I can. I do. It is located on Swan Lane, on the site of what was once the White Swan, a pub owned and run at one time by Jem Mace, who is the subject of today's podcast. Jem Mace was a boxer, a gentleman, and an all-round legend. Tim might be a tiny bit biased. Nope. Legend. This man travelled the globe, set up boxing schools on four different continents, and became world heavyweight boxing champion in America in 1870. That's the first world boxing champion ever. He also had a hand (laughs) in reviving the Olympic Games in Liverpool in the 1870s. He was born in Beeston, Norfolk. I've been there. Boxing, eh? Do you like boxing? Yes, But I am a bit more keen in learning about the history of boxing than the modern-day sport, although I will be very interested to see the results of the big upcoming Mayweather-Pacquiao fight. See, I'm not squeamish. I'm well hard me. (laughs) Shut up, Tim. But I don't see the appeal of watching people laying into one another like that, really. Well, I think there's a number of reasons to like boxing. In one sense, it's very much about being at the peak of physical prowess. Mm. Um, It's probably the most stripped back form we have of, uh, of competition in which you're just dominating another person or trying to dominate another person which really that, that's sort of the basis of all competitive sport hmm. um, and I think you get such big personalities in boxing, I mean people like Muhammad Ali, Mike Tyson Evander Holofield, Lennox Lewis I mean these people, are, they had great gravitas and presence just in themselves and that leads people to get in you know, they get involved and invested in the man not just the fighter. So Jem Mace, he was quite a character himself, wasn't he? He was, yeah. He was a big force of personality. He first realised he was good at fighting when he was playing the violin, actually. He was um, set upon by four fishermen in Yarmouth um, (laughs) who broke his violin. Oh, no. Uh, Yes. Uh, And so then Jem proceeded to break them. Oh, I see. Yeah, so it's at this point Jem realises he's quite a talented fighter. Boxing, which at the time was referred to as pugilism mostly, was an underground sport. It was very, very popular with both the upper and the lower classes, but it was also very illegal. (laughs) Uh, And mainly it happened in circuses and and sideshows where there'd be um, a, a pugilist, a fighter, and men would pay to have a fight with him. <laughs> uh, and if you win, you, you won some money. And if you didn't win, you, you're probably quite badly injured, but <laughs> you'd had some fun. It's a Friday night, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so from there, Jem started to get bigger and bigger fights until eventually he gets a shot at the, the English title, which is, you know, the, the big boxing title in those times. Mm. 
uh, and he he wins. He becomes English champion. He defends that successfully for a little while, and then he skips across the pond to the States, where he becomes a bit of a sensation because British fighters were very much in vogue at that time. They were they they were very popular and they were very successful, uh, and so eventually Jem got a shot at the the American title which, again, he won in 1870. He was the first man to unify the English and the American boxing championships. So, effectively, he is the first heavyweight world champion. Amazing. Yes, he is. Jem was also one of the architects of transforming pugilism into boxing. Uh, he, he helped to instigate things like the introduction of gloves, standardizing of ring sizes, of round times, rules for the count, so if a, if a fighter is downed, he, he has to get up within a count, mm-hmm. things like that. Mike Tyson was once asked which boxer he would most like to meet, uh, and his answer was Jem Mace. Well, that's cool. Yes. Jem is now kind of regarded as the father of modern boxing. Well, that's not the only thing he was the father of, was it? No, he was quite prolific in that sense as well. Many children. <laughs> many children. <laughs> With many women. Some of whom he married. <laughs> Sometimes simultaneously. Oops. <laughs> so, the father of modern boxing. Do you know what happened to him? Uh, yes, I do. Oh, well, perhaps you'll tell us about it. Mm. Around the ring is the excited buzz of a great many people. Families and households, whole communities were gathered for the fight. They all spoke at once in a muddled, eager voice. He steps into the press, his seconds clearing people from his path to the ring. It only took one to turn and see him to start the cheer. It sweeps over the crowd like a wave. They pushed and shoved, fighting to get closer to him. He waves to them, beaming his famous smile, his arms spread wide. The working men grasp his hands in triumph. The rich women swoon as only they can. The children shrieked and cried. He climbs into the ring and stalks along the ropes, arms aloft. The crowd roar. They stamp their feet and they chant his name. The referee calls the fighters up to the scratch, and suddenly there's no sound at all. The first and only heavyweight champion of the world reaches out to shake hands with the other man. Right now, he's the only other man that exists. There's no malice in the champ's eyes, no hate, no fear. Just a will to conquer and dominate. The ref's hand goes up, and the crowd gasps as the challenger comes bulling in. He's taller and heavier, and his fists are a blur about the champ's head. The crowd holds its breath and waits for their hero to fall. He ducks, he dodges, he weaves, sliding past the blows by a gnat's whisker. He's backing away towards the ropes. The other man presses on, bearing down on the champ. His fists come closer and closer till he's less than an inch from landing his killer blow. Then crack! Out flashes the champ's left and lands squarely in the other man's eye. He stumbles back and straight into a right that shakes his jaw and makes his legs tremble. Now the crowd erupt. They're on their feet, and they are wild as their man circles the ring like a tiger in a cage. This is how he fights. This is what he's built for. This is how he forged himself into the champion of the world. His opponents were always bigger, always stronger, but he was faster and smarter. Now these big men were like statues to him, standing tall and proud in the centre of the ring, heavy stone fists at the ready. Well, his fists were chisels, and he could skip about the ring chipping away at them. They called him a coward at first. When he was a young man fighting in the sideshows, they jeered and taunted. Stop running away, called the crowd. Stand and fight, yelled to the other man. Come and catch me. They tried. 
They gave it everything they had, but right when they thought they had him, they found his left buried in their face. When they saw that, the crowd didn't call him a coward anymore. They called him a dancer. He danced across the ring, and they couldn't catch him. He danced across England, and they couldn't catch him. He danced across the oceans, and they couldn't catch him. He danced across the world, and they called him its champion. Wherever he went, they were all drawn into his rhythm. Inside the ring or out, they all danced to his lead. Money and acclaim, women and fame, he raised the bar and he changed the game. The opponent and the crowd were right where he wanted them. All that was left was the killing blow. Then crack. He opens his eyes. He's staring up into a cold, dark sky with his back to the dirt. There's no sound about him. No stamping feet, no cheering voices. There is no other man standing over him and looking down. No hand is there offering to help him up. He is down. He is out. And he hadn't seen the blow that felled him. His money was gone. His fame had dwindled. And he was alone. Like so many before him, the heavyweight champion of the world had been pulled into the rhythm set by Jem Mace. And though he lasted till the final round, that was what put him down. Oh, that's sad. Very sad, yeah. Oh, so what happened to him? Well, he was an extremely successful fighter and a rather successful businessman, but he was a very unsuccessful gambler. Very, very unlucky. Mm. And he lost everything and died destitute was given a, a pauper's funeral and buried in an unnamed grave. Oh. But he is remembered now um, in a memorial gravestone in Beeston. And here in our podcast. And forever in my heart. <laughs> oh, Tim. Mm. So, what's your story, Shay? Well, it also features a fight, but uh, there are some differences and more sandwiches. Mm. Well, do tell. Years ago, there was a sandwich shop on Swan Lane. You know, the kind of place, salt beef and gherkins and things in the hummus. It was very popular, and the proprietors of the other local shops always got their sandwiches there. The jeweller would have ham and mustard, the whiskey, celebrity and bacon, and the vaguely mysterious woman from the agency round the corner always bought an apple juice and a single slice of brown toast. The manager of the sandwich shop was a highly civilised human being who valued good ingredients and a gross annual turnover unimpeded by the living wage. She was nice enough in her way. The assistant manager, however, was an entirely different breed. His name was Carl, and he ruled the shop floor with an iron fist. In his heart, he was the frontman of a successful punk band, but in reality, he was the assistant manager of a sandwich shop, and this unfortunate dichotomy produced in him a festering and bitter fury. On Carl's days off, the shop was a peaceful, sunlit haven full of radio and chat and the smell of coffee. But when he was there, the staff worked in fearful silence. If, by the end of the day, at least one member of the team wasn't in the broom cupboard crying on the phone to their mum, Carl felt that he had failed in his duties. There was a girl who started working there called Mina. Mina liked sandwiches. She liked the shop and its comfortable clientele. She had a way with chutney, so the manager also liked her. The only person who didn't like Mina was Carl. He made this clear from day one. He would turn up the heat on her chutney so that it boiled and burnt. He blamed her for mistakes he made in the books. He made comments on her personal appearance. To the surprise of the other staff, Mina did not retreat to the broom cupboard to phone her mum. She didn't rise to Carl's needling. The rest of the team admired her fortitude, but nevertheless, the daily onslaught of Carl continued unabated. 
Mina had made particularly good friends with Harry, who was responsible for the mayonnaise and sauces, and one day Mina found him crouched behind the fridges with his head in his hands because Carl had ruined yet another batch of piccalilli on purpose, and it was then that she realised she had had enough. Carl's reign of terror had to come to an end. So that night the staff, except for Carl, who was not invited, went down the pub and had a few. Mina bought Harry a drink and listened to his sorrows. When he said he was thinking of quitting the sandwich shop because of the stress, Mina slammed down her pint. You can't quit because of him, she said. You make the best piccalilli in town. What will become of the sandwich shop without you? Harry said he was sorry, but he couldn't do it anymore. He kept having nightmares in which Carl forced him inch by inch into the mustard pot. Mina said it isn't fair. He's the one who's doing wrong. We can't go on making sandwiches in these conditions. I'm going to file a complaint. Well, at these words, the rest of the staff raised a cheer and hammered on the table. Harry gave a watery smile and Mina felt invincible. So on Monday, she wrote a letter to her manager explaining that she wished to make a formal complaint about Carl's behaviour. Her manager thanked her for the letter and said she would be informed of the next steps in due course. That afternoon, Carl was called upstairs to the manager's office. When he returned, he approached Mina slowly. He took off one of his disposable catering gloves and very deliberately struck her across the face with it. Mina asked him what he was doing. You filed a complaint, yes? He said. Yes, she said. Well then, he said. Thursday, 6pm, outside the shop, just you and me. Mina was none the wiser, so she went upstairs again to speak to the manager. The manager explained that the lengthy complaints procedure had long been scrapped to save money, and instead employees were expected to take an active role in resolving their personal conflicts by beating the living hell out of one another in a public grudge match. The loser forfeits their job, the winner goes back to work as normal. The manager asked if Mina had any questions. Word soon spread amongst the staff. Mina, their champion, was to face down Carl in a fight on Thursday evening straight after the gherkin delivery. Gary, who'd been there the longest, said he recalled a similar fight several years ago, the last time someone had raised a complaint. He refused to elaborate on the outcome. Harry gave Mina pep talks in the broom cupboard when her anxiety got the better of her. I haven't fought anyone since school, she said. Harry said it would probably come naturally. Just lamp him, he said. But Mina couldn't shift the sick feeling of fear in the pit of her stomach. The day before the fight, the jeweller from down the lane came into the shop very early. Mina was sweeping the floor. Everyone else was in the storeroom taking stock. The jeweller snuck over to Mina and pressed something into her hand. For the fight, he said, and hurried out again. Mina looked at the object in her hand. It was a very small, very bright jewel on a slender chain. Ten minutes before opening, the whiskey man bumbled into the shop. Mina was arranging egg mayo sandwiches behind the counter. Everyone else was in the staff room drinking tea. The whiskey man pressed a small bottle into Mina's hand. For the fight, he said. Liquid courage. He winked and left. The day passed in a blur of faces and sandwiches and sandwiches being put into faces. As night fell, Mina was tilling up alone when she looked up to find the vaguely mysterious woman who worked at the agency round the corner, standing on the other side of the counter. She had long dreadlocks and was dressed in grey. She laid a hand on Mina's cheek, and she looked into Mina's eyes. Mina felt a shudder walk right through her bones. No, said the woman, you need nothing from me. And with that, she was gone. Mina passed a sleepless night. She was five foot two and Carl was pushing six foot four. She was a pacifist, he was a vindictive bastard. When morning came, she did not know what to do, so she put on her uniform and her stripy hat and apron. The chain with the jewel on it went round her neck and the whiskey miniature went into her pocket. As she was leaving, it struck her that she may never come home again and she kissed the cat in a sudden storm of grief. Somehow she got through the day. Harry made her a strong coffee as they closed up the shop, but she refused it. I want a clear head for this, she said. Harry said, but perhaps it'll hurt less if you're buzzing. A small crowd gathered in the street outside. Mina handed Harry the shop keys. We're all rooting for you, Mina, he said. 
She couldn't speak. Her colleagues were standing in a line by the shop window. Feeling sick, she passed Harry the whiskey miniature. He accepted it, took a swig and passed it down the line. Mina walked out into the street. Carl was waiting. He was wearing a vest with the words Complaints Committee printed on it, and he was smiling. The crowd began to chant, Fight, fight, fight! Their faces swam before Mina's eyes. She saw Carl move towards her as if through water. His arm swung out and his fist caught her a heavy blow to the shoulder. She hit him back, much harder and faster than she thought she would. He staggered, she charged him, caught him just below the ribs with her elbow. He hit her on the back and then around the head, making her ears ring. Afterwards, Mina remembered little of the fight. People said it raged for hours, up and down Swan Lane and onto London Street, up towards the Guildhall, through the shut-up market stalls and up onto the War Memorial. Mina fought with a fury she hadn't known she possessed. It even looked at one point like she was winning. And then Carl grabbed the chain around her neck and pulled, and it broke, flinging its tiny jewel into the gutter. And all the strength drained out of Mina as though an invisible plug had been pulled, and Carl's final blow laid her out cold on the pavement. Her colleagues carried her back to the sandwich shop and fed her soup until she could stand. Carl appeared in the doorway wearing his best gloat. You can see yourself out, he said. Mina took off her hat and apron and gave them to Harry. He was unsteady from the whisky he had shared with the rest of the team, but he shook his head. You're going to need those, he said. What do you mean, said Carl? She lost. She's fired. Mina, you're fired. Get out. No, said Harry, and he raised himself up to his full height. The other members of the team joined him, staring Carl down. She's staying, said Harry. You are the one who's fired. You get out. I want to talk to the manager, said Carl. Well, you can't. She's at a bread convention. You can't treat me like this, said Carl. Leave, said Harry, and if you ever come back, you'll have all of us to deal with, not just one small chutney maker. And thus, by the grace of good whisky and peer pressure... Carl was vanquished. He left the sandwich shop and did in fact realise his dream of playing in a punk band, though the extent of their success is debatable. The sandwich shop became a happier place and the team worked away putting things between bits of bread in peace for several years before the shop closed down and they moved on to other things. The complaints policy was reinstated for a while, but after some particularly nasty paperwork, it was decided that unarmed combat was in fact a more effective solution. <laughs> Thank you for that story, Shay. That was lovely. Um, you're welcome. Are you are you quite um, well? Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, a little bit of wee came out at the pick a lily bit. Um, um, glad to hear it. I think I really loved that story. Oh, I'm very glad. <laughs> uh, okay, we best be off, hadn't we? We better had be. Uh, join us for our next podcast, where we'll move from one ring to another and meet a man who was up to all sorts of tricks. And with that abomination, goodbye. Yeah, that one was bad, wasn't it? So bad. Bye. Bye.